Well, thank you. Um, genuinely, we have had a fantastic time. Uh, Becky joked that it's been a date, but it's a real treat. You know, we get to come up and um, we've loved being with you. The presence of God in some of our times together has been incredible. And that's not just been in our times of worship where you kind of like think that that's, that's obviously where God's going to be moving. But just seeing the way that he's working amongst you in a fellowship through your community with each other, um, it's just been brilliant. So it's been really refreshing uh, and really exciting to be with you. I want to get you to cast your minds back, some of you, to the late 1990s. I know some of you are thinking, I wasn't born then. Um, does anybody remember a film called The Sixth Sense? It's kind of like a slightly creepy film. It has a little creepy kid who goes, I see dead people. Um, it's a very odd film. I'm now going to spoil it for you, okay? So if you've never seen that film, then I'm basically going to completely and utterly ruin it for you. But to be honest, you've had 25 years, so it's, it, it's on you. Um, the Sixth Sense is a very strange film because um, it has a, a seriously missed cast, Bruce Willis, as a very unlikely child psychologist, has to be said. Not really what you'd expect him to go into as a career. And um, he is tasked with counselling this boy who sees dead people. The big twist, which means now you never need to watch the film again, the big twist is Bruce Willis himself is dead. <gasps> I know. Um, and the thing was, when people saw that film, nobody saw it coming which is really bizarre, because when you see the film, you, you think afterwards, how did we miss that? It's, like, in the first scene, he gets shot. Okay, that, was a, that was a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> Throughout the rest of the film, nobody talks to him, except the little boy who sees dead people. His wife completely and utterly ignores him for the entire movie. I heard a comedian say, we just thought he had a middle-aged marriage. It's very odd, but the thing is, when you look back, you think, how did I miss that? And the reason is because it seems obvious to us that if somebody is walking and talking, that they are alive. And so you, you just don't even think, well, maybe they're dead. The, the story that we have at the end of Luke's Gospel about two disciples walking to the Emmaus Road is almost the exact opposite of that. They are utterly convinced that Jesus is dead, and he comes along walking alongside them as one who is alive. Um, and I think it's a really powerful message to where we're at in our culture at this moment. It's a message about what we've concluded. It's a message about um, being able to bounce back from what we've been under the last few years. So we're going to read that this morning and then draw some lessons out from it. So that's Luke chapter 24, if you'd like to turn your phones on. Uh, Luke 24, I'm going to read from verse 13. Luke is one of the four Gospels explaining uh, the story of Jesus' life. So now on that same day, now the day that we're talking about is the day that the, of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles of Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He said, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I just love Jesus. Right? You know, it's like, what else are they going to be talking about? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening these days? Jesus says, what things? 
About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, on the third day, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And he said to them, if you've been here this weekend, what tone of voice do you think Jesus used? He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe. All that the prophets have spoken, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he was going to go further. Again, he's having a little game with them again. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly night. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then they ran back to Jerusalem. They heard what the 11 were saying and they said, it is true. And then they told what had happened to them on the road and how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. Oh, it's a fantastic story, isn't it? Lord, we want to pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word this morning. Um, again, um, some of you might remember, there was a, uh, the late chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who was often on the radio doing thought for the day and things like that. An amazing man, absolutely amazing man. And he told a story that really stuck with me because um, he told this story once about how he went in for a checkup and this particular checkup, they put him on, you know, they put the pulse meter on his finger and then they put an oxygen mask on him and they stuck him on the treadmill and they said, right, run, run. And then the doctor would just sit there monitoring his signs. And, because he was actually very extroverted, very chatty. So as he's doing this thing, he's thinking, this is really boring. So he thinks, I'll have a conversation. So he pulls the mask to one side and he says, I, um, I bet you're checking my kind of like oxygen rate, aren't you? And the doctor said, put the mask back, keep running. So he's like doing that. After a little bit while, he's getting a bit bored, wants a little chat, so he pulls the mask off to one side and he says, all right, if it's not oxygen, you're checking the pulse rate, right? The doctor says, put the mask on, keep running. And he keeps running, keep running, right? And uh, after a while, they say, okay, you can stop. So he, he stops and he sits down and he says, um, okay, what, what, which one was it? Was it, the, was it the lung capacity? Was it the pulse rate? And they say, Look, please, would you just be quiet? And after about five more minutes, he finally cracks and he says, what were you testing? Was it, was it my pulse rate as I was running? Was it my lung capacity as I was running? And they said, no, we weren't testing anything when you were running. What we wanted to do was test your recovery rate after you stopped. I think it's a really interesting story because there's been a lot spoken in our culture about resilience in the last few years. You know, what do you need to have built into your life so you can cope with whatever life throws at you? But the truth is, for every single one of us, there will come times in lives where we are overwhelmed by something and resilience isn't enough because it will be more than we can cope with 
And it will come, therefore, into our lives with damage to body, mind, and spirit. And the big question is not, how can I be more resilient so it doesn't happen again? The big question is, how do I recover from being overwhelmed with all the stuff that life throws at me? And I think the um, passage that we read today has got a lot to tell us about how we can bounce back for those kind of moments. And just to draw some, some quick thoughts out from there, the first thing is actually about roads. Luke, is, um, he has a bit of a thing about geography. He's very precise about geography. Most of the geography that uh, Luke talks about is spiritually significant. You'll notice these two disciples are walking away from the thing that they've just heard that is possibly life-transforming. In other words, they're going in entirely the wrong direction. And Luke also has a little thing about roads. Throughout Luke's gospel and then the book of Acts that he wrote as kind of like Luke part two, um, roads are really significant. So when Jesus has the encounter, they, they want to talk about his departure, his destination, when he encounters Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the stories that Jesus tells, roads are significant. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan is about going on the road to Jericho. Uh, Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. A lot of the encounters that Jesus has are on the road. If you go on, then you've got things in the book of Acts, like Philip and the Ethiopian on the road to Gaza, or Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus. So roads for Luke are places of danger, maybe, but they're also places of encounter, potentially places of change, places where you suddenly see things in a completely new light and your life is changed and turned around. And it's really interesting that so often when God wants to do something in our lives, he has to bring us, he has to, bring us to a place where we're neither here nor there. That's the thing about roads, isn't it? You're, not, you're neither here nor there. You're in between. Sometimes um, people say, they call them liminal spaces, a place where you, you're out of your, un, your old certainties and Nothing's quite what you expect. You notice that God does some really interesting work when prophets are in pits or when patriarchs are in prison or, or even when you're in the belly of a whale or you're off in the desert in the wilderness. God seems to work in those sort of neither here nor there kind of places. And that means that actually in our recovery, when we're overwhelmed and we're, we're, we're in a place where Everything has kind of like crashed in. Our world has crashed around us and we just don't know how to get up and get going again. It's really interesting that sometimes God will say, I want, you, I want you to bring you off somewhere else. Elijah, I want you to go on a big hike and I'm going to speak to you when you're in a cave on a mountain. And you think, well, how does that apply to my life? Well, it literally means that sometimes you just need to get away. Sometimes you, you need to step out from the familiar and go to a place where it's, it's kind of you and God. I think, you know, obviously I've been talking about coming to United, coming to the big New Wine Festival in the summer. So often God does things in those spaces because we're stepping into a space where we're able to focus on him. We're able to soak ourselves in his presence. All the other distractions have gone. In our own lives, just to practice it, you know, we, we need sometimes just to pull back from the familiar to let God speak to us and challenge us out of the familiar into a new better. One of the best bits of advice I was ever given as I started in ministry came sort of secondhand from uh, the great American pastor, uh, Rick Warren. 
And Rick Warren used to say this, if you're going to survive in ministry, you need to divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. So now every day you need to distract yourself. Every day you need to divert, get your mind off the stuff. You know, if, you're, if you're going to be 24-7 focused on, on the job that you've got and the responsibilities you carry, it's going to kill you. So every day distract yourself, divert yourself daily. Go out for a walk, watch something that's fun, play a game, paint a picture, something like that. Every week, though, you need to withdraw. Withdraw weekly. You know, your day off, you shouldn't just be in the same place. For us, where we, you know, we live where we work, it means for a day off, you need to get out sometimes. Go out for a coffee. Go and do a little bit of shopping. Just go somewhere different. Get away from that place where the desk is and where the phone keeps going off. But then the really big one, you need to abandon annually. So once a year, at least, you need to make sure you get away, you're completely free from the responsibility, you can't be contacted, you don't know what's going on. I usually say to my team, right, Becky and I, we're on holiday for the next two weeks. I don't want to hear unless one church warden kills the other church warden, sets fire to the church. Anything less than that, you can deal with it. I've always struggled to sort of practice that, to let go. And I suspect probably you're a bit like that as well. We need sometimes to get out, go on pilgrimage, get away with God. You know, if you, if you really think, I'm in a terrible place, I, I don't know how to get out of this hole that I'm in, book yourself into a and b or go and find a friend, just go somewhere else and meet God away from the familiar. So that's what they're, they're, they're doing. They're on the road. They didn't know God was going to ambush them, but at least they were out of the familiar, so they were open to new things. And of course, what happens is Jesus comes alongside them, and the next stage in recovery is to talk it out with Jesus. Um, it's really important to talk things out, because if you don't, they'll fester. Becky, um, in her teaching, as she shared her testimony, she talked a lot about how you need to find a safe place. You find, find a safe place where you can at least start to tell someone. You know, and as we go through, and Jesus is asking these sort of questions like, what are you talking about? What things? What's he trying to do? He's trying to get them to talk. And I think the moment he tries to get them to talk... They start pouring stuff out. Now, we often say, don't we, that a problem shared is a problem halved. And it's almost true. Often a problem shared is a problem reinforced if you talk to the wrong person. You talk to the wrong person, you go, oh, it's all terrible. And they go, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no hope. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, you poor thing. Never mind. You know, look on the bright side. Still got your health. Oh, no, you haven't. Sorry. You know, it's... it's, it's Sometimes if you talk to the wrong person, you're not going to make any progress. But Jesus comes alongside them. Working things out often requires us to, to express them, but it also requires the hearer knows how to listen and to respond. And so what happens is Jesus lets them talk, but then he challenges the assumptions that they were making. I think the reason, the reason Jesus asked those provocative questions is to get these three words out of them. We had hoped. That's the absolute turning point of this passage where these two disciples say, we had hoped. And there is a world of hurt bound up in that little phrase, isn't there? We had hoped. I wonder if there's something in your life where you could say, we had hoped. We had hoped that we'd have children. Or we had hoped that by now we'd be living in our own place. Or I had hoped that I'd be married. Or we had hoped that this would get better. 
we had hoped that we could reconcile that situation. Um, of course, what they believe is actually completely false. We had hoped. It's really interesting, but in this passage, the things that they are certain about are wrong, and they struggle to believe the things that are actually true. And so Jesus has to start bringing them back to the thing that's always true, which is the Bible, taking them back to the promises of God. And he shows them through the whole of the Scripture. Now, for them, that meant the Old Testament. So he's basically saying he took the 39 books, he took Moses and the prophets, and he showed them every way where he was the center of the story and where all that they were experiencing was foretold. You know, sometimes our faith is incredibly naive where we think God shows up, it's going to be great. If, if it isn't great, God hasn't shown up. And Jesus says to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer to enter into all these things? He sort of said, you know, don't think that the version of the truth that you've been sold is the one that is actually true. Go a bit deeper. Dig with God. And then see that God is right at the heart of this story. That whatever happens is not beyond God's control. And his promises are all going to be yes and amen in Jesus. And it's going to be great, even if it's mixed. And he takes them back to that and he talks them through it. But even that's not enough. If we're going to recover, we're going to have to get to that place where we start to get shaken up from our, our, our sort of familiar surroundings. We're going to have to talk it out with Jesus. We're going to have to be led back to the truths. But actually what you really need to make the breakthrough is you need a moment of encounter. So... I guess their heads are spinning at this point and, and they, they're loving what they're getting from this stranger and they come to what is presumably their own house. You know, they've been walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's probably their house. And they say, stay with us because Jesus is kind of like, I'm going to go on. Do you want, yeah, yeah. And it, he's waiting for that invitation, I think. And they say, stay with us. And so he comes in. And this is one of those things that we often miss we miss what's going on because we don't really understand the culture or the context that the Bible was written into. Jesus does something absolutely shocking because when you're in somebody's house, it is the responsibility of the host to bless the food and say thanks before we have the meal. And Jesus just takes over and he takes the food and he blesses and he's like, who are you? But then as he breaks the bread, they realize who he is. He is the risen Lord. And you think, why? What did they notice? You know, was it as he broke the bread, they could see the nail prints in his hands? Was it as he broke the bread, they were reminded about the last supper that they'd either heard about or they were there for? Was it as he broke the bread and gave thanks that they realized that he has an incredible relationship with God and then the penny drops? He's the son of the father, isn't he? He's Jesus. We don't really know. But the point is, he came in and revealed himself. It's only then that they can put it all together and reinterpret what's happened to them. Only then that they can get a true grasp and their hearts suddenly embrace joy and hope and new life. You know, talking things out and reframing the, project, the problem will get you so far, but ultimately what you need is an encounter with God. You need an encounter with God. And I was reflecting recently that 
Um, a lot of the really negative words in the English language begin with, begin with the letter D. It's true, isn't it? You know, so I put a list, you know, disappointment, depression, despondency, despair, doubt, death, discouragement, disillusion. And I thought, that's really interesting. And then I realized, well, that's because the prefix D or dis basically means to take out, to lose. And then I thought, and a lot of the really positive words in the English language begin with E. So encounter, encourage, enliven, entrust, enfold. Maybe because the prefix N means within or to put in. And that gives us a real hint as to what it is that we need to break discouragement or depression or despondency or despair. How do you break those things? Well, you need to put something in. Those things are manifestations of of not having enough or having been, been robbed and left depleted. And the truth is, in the last few years, all of us have been robbed. What we've been through the last few years, it, we, we just systematically, the, the thing that we've been going through as a culture has taken stuff away from us. It's taken the familiar away. It's, for some, it's taken health away. For some, it's even taken loved ones away. It's taken away the opportunity to be enriched by the things that keep us alive, which is community with each other. It's shut us into smaller worlds and, and robbed from us. If you're in a position like that and you're still carrying some of that burden of discouragement and depression and you just can't get back to where you were, what you need is not a D word but an E word. It's why we're so big on the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the answer to all those things is that he would come inside. What you need is a fresh encounter with Jesus, not just reframing the problem, That's really important, but you need that fresh encounter, that he would come in, he would fill you up. So my thought today as we end the weekend, and as perhaps if you've not been on the weekend, as we keep going through this period of recovery as a nation, I thought, what is it that God wants to do? What does he want to challenge that maybe you've believed or concluded that actually isn't true? He wants to give you a fresh perspective And where does he want to come and fill and thrill so that you have what you need to get back to the life? Remember Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. He's the robber. I have come in order that you might have life and life in all of its fullness. Shall we stand? This, if you're carrying something really big that you need to recover from, it might be that you, you need to follow all of those steps, that you need to get away from the familiar, go on a pilgrimage, withdraw to a space where it's you and God, take a retreat, go visit a friend and stay in their spare room. might be that you need to start talking it out, like well, probably all of us do. We start talking about the things that we're discouraged but it will also be that you need to let the Holy Spirit show you what you've concluded that's false about yourself, about God, about your future and let Jesus challenge those narratives. And it will always be that you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's just open ourselves to his presence again. Thank you, Lord, for being with us in this time.
your presence in the worship. We know that you're here. Thank you for speaking to us through that word. Thank you for what you did for those two disciples, headed in the wrong direction, without hope. Holy Spirit, I ask that you take the words of Scripture and connect them to the lives that we lead.